0: At this point in our service, we uh, we spend time praying together. Um, uh, right right before I went to bed on uh, Tuesday, May 24th, I uh, saw the news for the first time, and. Um, I had to shut it off because I need to go to bed, and I couldn't do that right then. And um, so I woke up the next morning early to to go to the gym like I always do, and read a little bit of what had happened in Valde, Texas, and um, I said I can't do this right now, and. Um, So I went to the gym, and I came home, and my kids need to go to school. And so um, I I said goodbye to my four kids. Um, And I um, went inside, and I got in the shower, because I stank from working out. And I just... Lost it. Um, Just the horror of fourth graders. I am a fourth grader and, um, I only saw, like, two or three pictures of these smiling kids who had gone to school and would never come home. But it was enough. I only needed to see two or three. I couldn't see 19 of them. Right after I said goodbye to my four kids, And um, I cried for them. And I cried for every kid that survived that, that is never, ever going to be able to forget what happened in their classroom, what happened in their school. And I cried for parents who waited outside for hours not knowing if their child was living or dead and the ones that found out that their child had died, I cried for myself because I have to send my kids to school every day. and. I may be crazy, but I'm half a mile from my, most of my kids' elementary school. And I live in a world where I hurt, when I hear sirens sometimes, I'm worried they're going to my kids' school. Because I know that the people of Valde and Sandy Hook feel the same way that I do. That could never happen here. And it did. And I cried because I was so angry that um this is the world that we live in. Uh, I never thought I would see something like Sandy Hook again. And there's the Parkland shooting, and then there's this one. So angry that we seem just sort of incapable as a country to do anything. That this is just sort of viewed as the sort of cost of living in this country. I have friends outside of this country, and they don't understand how we live in this world. And that day, I felt the same way. You know, I was angry because half the country is going to say, melt down all the guns. Half the other country is going to say, arm every single school like it's a weapons depot. One half of the country is never going to disagree agree with the other. And that's just going to stop. It's just going to stop right there. We can't even move past that phase of the disagreement and say, "Well, can we figure out something that we agree on and do?" And you know, the the cost of not being able to do that is kids, is children, and that is infuriating. It's terrifying. If you read the Old Testament, if you read the Minor Prophets, the anger of God at Israel. But their failure to protect the vulnerable and the defenseless is like the most repeated indictment of God against Israel again and again and again. And I'm just watching it happen, and I'm sending my kids to school every day, hoping to God that they won't be the next ones. And I, I don't know what to do. I can't tell. I don't want to like political solutions for you. I'm I'm not a constitutional rights scholar, or or I don't know any of that stuff. All I'm just saying as a parent is, are we just gonna keep doing this? Is that the plan? Just to keep what we're doing again and again and again? These are kids. (laughs) My youngest child, Enter kindergarten in the fall. I will have three kids at WD Elementary and one child at Owen High School. And honestly, my thought was, "I I have 13 more years of wondering if my kids are going to be okay. And sometimes I just don't know if I can do it. I don't know what to do. But I do know we have to pray. I would love to figure out what the action is beyond prayer. I can't figure that out. But I do know we have to pray. And I, I don't honestly don't know the words to pray. The only thing I could pray in the shower was just noises, just crying, and asking God how long. So this morning we're going to pray using the help of other people. We're going to pray this liturgy for national tragedy. It is call and response, and it's helpful. Pre-written prayers are helpful when you don't have the words. I don't have the appropriate words. So I'm going to read portions of this, and and you're invited to respond in prayer with these bolded and underlined portions. This is from uh, Every Moment Holy, Volume 2. These two books of prayers are extraordinarily helpful, not just for terribly difficult things, but also wonderful and mundane things. Would you join me in prayer? O God who gathers what has been scattered. O Christ who binds our wounds. O Spirit who enters our every grief. Be present in the midst of this far-reaching pain, O Lord, for we are reeling again at news of another loss of life that touches us all, news of flourishing diminished, of individuals harmed, of pain imposed, not only upon victims and their families who bear now the immediate brunt of it, but also upon our nation, for we are connected as a people, and this hurt, this grief touches us all. Engage our imaginations and move our hearts to compassion, O Lord. That we would interact with these casualties not as news stories or statistics, but as our own sisters and brothers, flesh and blood, divine image bearers. Irreplaceable individuals whose losses will leave gaping holes in homes, friendships, workplaces, churches, schools, organizations, and neighborhoods. You do not run from our brokenness, O God. You move ever towards those in need. Your heart is always inclined toward those who suffer now let your mercies be active through the hands the words and the compassionate care of those who are willingly enter the sadness to console and to serve the helpers the counselors the first responders those who offer aid and protection the pastors and intercessors those who meet immediate practical needs, those who seek to heal physical wounds, and those who come after to carry on the long, hard work of rebuilding families and hearts and lives and community. Even in the shadow of such tragedy, let us not lose hope. Give us eyes to see the rapid movements of mercy rushing to fill these newly wounded spaces. Let us see in this the echoes of your own mercy and compassion, a foretaste of your kingdom come to earth. And move our hearts, own hearts also, equipping us to intercede, to act, and to respond however we are able. Arrest the hearts and stay the hands of any who even now might be plotting further evil and violence against others, O Christ. You once brooded over the formless chaos of ancient waters and brought forth the order and flourishing of creation. Do so again, O Spirit of God. From the chaos of this tragedy, call forth new life and order and flourishing, Take even what our adversary might have meant for evil and from it bring forth eternal good. You alone have strength to carry this people. You alone have wisdom and power to heal the wounds of a nation. You alone have compassion enough to enter our widespread grief and turn it to hope. Amen. Amen. Um, We did want to remind everybody, um, because we haven't said it in a while, that upstairs, um, there's a uh, nursing mom's parents' room. Uh, If you've got kids that stay with you, that's great. And if they're sort of losing their mind, which happens, um, you don't have to just exit completely. You can go up these stairs up here, and there's a TV up there with some seats, so that its live feed is run up there. Um, also, at, the, um, at some point at the end today, Claire, where are you? There's Claire. Um, we put in an email uh, earlier this week that Claire is helping with a, um, an effort to make uh, wigs for childhood cancer patients. And Claire does hair. Uh, She's involved in the making of these wigs, and they're having an event coming up soon. And if you'd like more information about that, she's going to be out here in the back with some flyers, some information. She's also going to be selling some raffle tickets to do fundraising for things like that. Um, You should check that out uh, with her. And the last thing that I wanted to to, uh, update you on is uh, you're going to hear next week about and you're going to see things around you about we're going to really start talking regularly about what we're trying to do in this space for our building um we're trying to do about seventy thousand dollars worth of renovations and changes here as you walked in you might have noticed there's different colors of carpet on the floor and um, as more kids come in you might notice that seats are hard to come by and find we're working on things like that to to not totally change this space but to embrace what it is, freshen it up a bit, and try to put more seats out for for people to be able to sit in. We're looking at trying, we're gonna order chairs soon. Those are three months away, so like now the clock starts. Um, We have enough money and more in savings to pay for over half of this because of the generosity of our church. All of our leaders, elders, deacons, and staff, have given already, so we want you to know that leaders are leading from the front on this, and we want you to pray about and really seriously start saying, "Okay, God, if we're gonna if we're gonna support this, if we're gonna be involved in this, how should we? What does it look like over what period of time?" And next week, you're gonna start seeing cards that you can just say, "Hey, look, you can count on me for for this." Um, if you're not gonna give financially towards the the effort. We would absolutely appreciate your prayer um, because we believe in a building not as a container or the end-all be-all, but as a space where mission is launched from and where God is worshipped. So that's important. That's really important. And we would love your prayer as we move towards uh, making this space uh, even better equipped for us, Valley Hope, to be in here doing that. So um, next week you'll see more and hear more about that. We're excited to have you jump in with us. All right, uh, I'm going to read First Thessalonians five. We're in this series on the Thessalonian letters, and we're going to wrap up the letter to the, the first letter to the Thessalonians. If you'd like a print Bible, there is one near you. Just look around uh, to, on the backs of the pews or underneath, and you should find one there. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another, and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active, bearing your own authority for our lives. And God, we pray that your spirit would illuminate these words for us, that our eyes would truly see, that our ears would truly hear, that our hearts would receive, be shaped and formed, that we might be lovers of you more faithfully and truly, that all might see and know you, and Jesus might be glorified. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. The focus uh, this morning is on this verse: "Greet all the brothers with the holy kiss." No, I'm kidding. I'm not good. <laughs> under exposited verse, for sure, um, but we'll be looking at the entirety of this chapter and what Paul is talking about here. Uh, the Thessalonian church has uh, had some questions. About the return of Jesus. We talked about some of those questions previously in uh, weeks prior. Now, one of the most pressing kinds of questions that they are asking, which is completely understandable, when, how is he coming? And Paul says uh, he establishes this sort of metaphor, this visual imagery that for one, we don't know when. So he, he says, I'm not even going to get into this. You already know the answer to this, because apparently he's already taught this in person with them. We also have the words of Jesus in the Gospels who say the time is unknown, and we don't know when the day or the hour is. So Paul said, I'm not even going to touch that, but I'll tell you what it's going to be like when it does come. It's going to be surprising. It's going to be sudden. It's going to happen as it were in the middle of the night for some people. It's going to be while they're sleeping. It's going to be like labor that happens in the middle of the night, which is always seemed like what happened for us and our family. You go to bed, and that's when the contractions start. That's my understanding. I did not personally experience those. Paul says the coming of Jesus is going to be like that, a sudden onset of, of pain and judgment for some people. But he says, but for you, it's not like that. You won't be like the ones in the night. You will not be ones who are asleep. You will not be ones who are, uh, have lost yourselves in drunkenness. You are people of the day. You are people of the light. And so you will be ready, and you should live that way. You should live like people who are perpetually ready. And he says you shouldn't be afraid. That's one of the dominant themes that we've seen As Paul discusses this issue of what the end will be like, and that's important to remember as we move into 2 Thessalonians, as we maybe ourselves are asking these questions, when, how long is this going to be? For many people, this question of Jesus coming back and returning is a question loaded with fear. But Paul says, for the people of God, for Jesus' people, this is not a scary question. You should not be afraid because God has not appointed To you, a destiny of wrath, he has instead obtained for you a salvation. And so you can look forward to the day of the Lord with anticipation and with joy. He uses the language from the Old Testament of the day of the Lord, which is the revealing of God's judgment on the evil that is in the world. He speaks about Jesus coming to judge. There's a judgment that is coming. And the language of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, it it toggles back and forth between this good news, bad news situation. And on the one hand, God is going to reveal judgment on all that is evil in the world. We today, as we've just prayed about and talked about, we are eminently aware of the evil in the world that God should judge, that we want Him to judge. Now, the word in the day of the Lord in the Old Testament also warned Israel like, hey, Maybe don't be so excited about the day of the Lord, Israel, because God's going to judge all the evil, including yours. Now, what would happen in the biblical story is the apostles would stand up after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, and they would announce this surprising good news that, in a sense, the day of the Lord has come. It's happened. And many people missed it. They didn't understand that the judgment of God had already arrived in, to some degree and it has arrived on the person of Jesus. So that when Jesus is crucified and resurrected, all of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus do not now need to be afraid of the day of the Lord ever again because the day of the Lord, the judgment of God on evil, has happened on the person of Jesus Christ. So that now on the other side of the cross, Israel's hopes are all that we inherit. You don't have to be afraid of the revelation of God and his judgment in the world. If you follow Jesus, all that you have ahead of you is hope. You are a people of the day and you don't need to live in fear like a people of the night. And so that from that description, he turns and describes what a people of the day look like. And this is a helpful sort of litany of teaching that is replicated throughout multiple parts of the New Testament, not just in Paul's writings, but in Peter's and James. There's this kind of repetition of expected lifestyle amongst Christian community. And so we're going to just look real quick at, at what some of those markers are. Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. That's me, to be frank. It's uncomfortable for me to say that, but it's true. Not just me, though, to be clear. We we believe he's talking about all people like elders and deacons who God appoints to lead and encourages people. There ought to be a relationship between leaders and led that is mutually loving. The description of Christian relations is that of mutual submission and love and honor. And so in the context of a healthy, vital, people of the day kind of church, you look at the people who are leading you and you don't look at them and say, I've got to oust them. I've got to undercut them. I've got to undermine them. I've got to get their power out of their hands. That's unhealthy. And just as unhealthy as the people who are leading to look at the people who are being led and saying, I've got to take things from them. I've got to dominate them. I've got to control them. I've got to exercise power over them for my own purposes. Also unhealthy. These kinds of relationships throughout the New Testament are described as relationships of service, of love and honor for the health of the whole church of God. Not for the wealth of the leaders, not for the ego of anyone, but for the health of the body, the care of the people of the church, and the honor of Jesus' name. Both leaders and led have this sort of mutual affection for one another. And if that's off, then something is indeed off in the community. Then he goes on to to describe this sort of care for one another, not just about leaders and led, but between and amongst all of us. Be at peace among yourselves. And then he gives these three sort of categories of people. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. In other words, those who are afflicted by doubt. Help the weak. And then he says, be patient with them all. All these people that kind of get labeled as maybe troublemakers. Paul is is definitely concerned in the Thessalonian church that you would not have people, for example, who are just sort of sitting and taking and taking and taking and saying, I shouldn't have to do anything. People should take care of me. He repeats this issue multiple times. He says, admonish them. You shouldn't do that. Deal with people who are struggling with doubt. Be gentle with the weak. But he says, with all of these people who you and I might naturally and from our flesh get annoyed with. He says, be patient with them all. Do not, the Christian community should not be a place where people are written off. Because we find people in various stages of immaturity in sin. Yes, you admonish people who need to be admonished in Christian community. That's part of the deal. But you do so patiently and gently because you are with one another. You are at peace with one another. And notice, too, there's, there's, like, no asterisk here. There's no, like, you know, unless they're really annoying. You know? There's no, like, out. It's just be at peace with everyone. If you are not at peace with somebody in our congregation, you need to make peace, not as a relational suggestion, but as a command. Be at peace with everyone. That is challenging. See that no one repays anyone, evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Pretty simple. Always seek good to do, always seek to do good to one another and everyone. Just always seek to do good. There's a kind of generosity of spirit and charity with especially one another, but outward facing as well, that you should always seek to do good, not giving somebody what they deserve. Right? Because he's not saying, you will never have evil done to you. He says, don't repay the evil that is done to you. The assumption is that you will be sinned against. But a people of the day, people of the light, in light of who Jesus is, the light of the Jesus who's coming back, act accordingly with one another. Be generous to one another. Don't give each other what you deserve, in other words. Reflect the generosity and care of God himself within the Christian community. Christians are called to be doing and being certain kinds of people at all times. He uses this repeated language. Rejoice always. Pray ceaselessly. And always be giving thanks. Give thanks in all circumstances. Joy, prayer, and gratitude are supposed to be marks of Christian life together. Joy, prayer, and thanks. There is no like season of joy. There's no season of prayer. There's no season of gratitude. It is the perpetual mark of Christian life together. Christian community, the people of the day, are supposed to be plugged into and submitted to the work of the Holy Spirit. Apparently, the Thessalonian church has uh, got no space for prophecy in their church. They are skeptical for whatever reason. And Paul says, do not quench the spirit. He uses the language of the fire being put out because in the New Testament life, the spirit comes with the appearance of fire and he says, don't put the fire out. Don't quench the spirit. Do not reject prophecy. But instead, test the spirit. Maybe they were skeptical like that prophecy would happen and they'd be bunk. They'd be no good. Because guess what? That happens, right? You can turn on your TV and see it all the time. Go to the Christian stations, you can see bad prophecy. Maybe the Thessalonian church has their own TBN. Sorry. Uh, And they were like, "We we just don't want any of it. We don't want to have anything to do with that. Paul said, no, 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 don't do that. Don't quench the spirit. Prophecy is good. And elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, you should all desire to prophesy. Don't quench the spirit, but test. Test the spirit. Take what's good. Chuck out what's not. But be submitted to the living and breathing voice of the spirit of God. So Christian community is not only open-handed, and generous with one another, Christian community ought to be receiving from the open-handed generosity of God. This living and vital connection to the life of God himself is supposed to be a mark of who we are. He says, God will sanctify you completely, your whole self, all that is visible in you and invisible, May God sanctify you completely so that you will be a a completed work. What he says is he will do it because he's faithful. He's going to have the mission accomplished. Jesus will do it. Now, just in your mind sort of cast back this description of this people of the light, people of the day. Ask yourself the question, is this the reputation that Christians have in the world and amongst each other? Are the things that the world would say about us primarily That we are a people of great joy and prayer and gratitude. Does the world say this is a people of peace? This is this is a people who seeks to do good to those who wrong them. Look at yourself. Am I a person of joy and prayer and gratitude? All the time. I, I would suggest that if you're like me, there's some no's in there. I don't know too many people around me who are like, man, that Anthony, what a joyful guy. <laughs> you heard the way some people just laughed at that. Because <laughs> it's so ridiculous. That Anthony always giving thanks, always praying. I know that I myself do not reflect what Paul commands. How how many of us would look and, and honestly say, without boasting, but be able to say, look, when people repay, when people give me evil, I repay them with good. I release them from their obligation to me. I release them from that debt. And do good to them. How many of us would, would look at the state of our church and churches in general and say, you know what people in the valley think about us? That we keep short accounts. And we seek to be at peace. Do you think that, do you think that that's the perception of who we are? I would say largely No that in many respects, most people's perception of, of the church is almost on every account the opposite of what this description is. Look, some of that's a PR problem, right? Some people are just keen to find out every single bad example and they don't hear any of the good, good examples. That happens for sure. But in many ways and many times, that bad reputation is earned. And that is a problem. Because this Christian community here at Valley Hope and at every Christian community gathering is supposed to be a demonstration of the first part. Because we are a people of the light, because we know Jesus... Because we are a people not destined for wrath, but for whom God has obtained a salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus, because of our expectation that that Jesus is the king over the whole world, that he has everything firmly in his grasp, because that's true, this is how we act. So diagnostically, we work backwards is the evidence of bad behavior then evidence of something deep in our hearts which we do not trust. I think that's often true of me. I am often not a grateful person. Why? Well, for one, I'm pretty self-obsessed. I want want the things that I want. I very easily believe that the things I have, I have earned and I deserve. That it is not the Lord Jesus who's in charge and has given me those gifts. It is I who have taken what I deserve. And when I am too busy worrying about what will be, I am, in fact, saying I am the master of my own destiny. How do I control the outcomes that I deserve? And when I'm obsessed by these worryings and anxieties, there's no room for gratitude. Look, and we could do this all the way through this list of things. There is, in our, our doings, way in the undercurrents of our heart, a sign of things wrong in our right beliefs and loves. We ought to fix our eyes on what Paul directs our attention to. What God wants with his people, with me, with you, and with us, is to be with us. I'm too busy looking at myself, pursuing my own ends, holding account against other people, repaying other people with evil for the evil they've done to me, distracted in every way from this truth that he says in verse 10. Jesus died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. The alternative way of life does not work if your ambition is purely to be a good person. In that way, you can put a Christian name on the way of life that every other person is pursuing in this world. It will, it will not work out. You might be a, you might be a moral person. You, there's plenty of moral people out there who don't follow Jesus. But the effort to maintain your striving to just be good for good's sake, it will crush you. It will destroy you. It will ruin you. But the the thing that animates this living in the day is the revelation of the good news that the God has done whatever is necessary to obtain a salvation for you so that you could be with Him. Do you hear how astonishingly simple this vision is? All of, all of our, our agendas, all of the way that, that sin infects our life complicates everything profoundly. God, while infinite and eternal and vast, is not complicated. He is not complex. There are not many indecipherable parts to him. He is profoundly, infinitely simple. And what God wants for his people is to be with them. He wants you to be with him. And the power of being with him transforms you now. It transforms your character. If I just spend more and more time with Jesus, not even necessarily locked in some closet all by myself, but in the sort of quiet unseen spaces of my heart. I am finding myself going in and out of this posture of prayer and looking to Him and taking joy in what He's done and seeing Him again and again. I am with Him. He is with me. And that changes me. How can I not offer peace to other people when God himself is giving me the peace that I'm experiencing? How can I not be generous with others when I'm feeding constantly on the generosity of God? It changes who you are now and it forever alters the prospect of who you will be. Because God is eternally committed to you obtaining that salvation in fullness that you will be with him. That's the sum total of his plan. To transform you, body, soul, and spirit, Paul says, so that the whole of you will be able to be with God forever. That's the plan. And that prospect means we don't look to the coming of Jesus with fear, with fear of judgment, but with relief. How long, O oh Lord, until I might rest with you? If you are here today, and you are laboring and groaning under your strivings, if you are trying your very best to be your very best, and you have lost sight of what it means to just be with God, then you should hear the Scripture saying to you that Jesus has done all that is necessary to obtain for you a salvation in his cross and in his resurrection. God has thrown open the door to the living room of his life forever with you. You don't have to stand on the outside of the hallway and ask, might I come in and see the Father? The answer is yes, forever, indefinitely, in perpetuity, infinitely, and eternally. You can come in without rising to the standard of a good enough behavior. You never had it anyway. That's why Jesus did this thing for you. So if you've been weighted down, heavy laden, buried under the whole magnitude of your guilt, let it go. Lay it down. And let Jesus usher you in to what he did for you because he loves you. And if you are realizing that maybe you've gotten all your theology in a line, you could pass a theology test pretty good. But you are not a peaceful, spirit-submitted, joyful, prayerful, gracious person. The correction begins where you started. Come be with Jesus. Don't just pass your theology test. It doesn't say here in verse 10 that he did all of this so that you could answer all the right theology questions. He said, he did what he did to be with you. So lay down all the pride that you might have in your good theology. And go be with Jesus. And let him transform you by the day-by-day exposure to the abundance of his life. And if you are realizing today that if God was revealed... If judgment did indeed come, it is fear that you face. Because the day of the Lord has not yet come for you. Then you need to hear what Paul is saying. You can face the day of the Lord on your own two feet without Jesus. Or you can face the day of the Lord knowing that it has been delivered in your past so that you might know what the future looks like. If you are approaching life all by yourself, judgment is coming. And for you, like everyone else who would face that day by themselves, the prognosis is not good. But God wants for you not to face that day with fear. What God wants for you is to face that day with hope, with joy, with peace. Today, you must put your faith in Jesus. Let Him win the day for you and deliver to you what He has already done. Come trust in Jesus and in no one else. And God will surely do the thing that you've accomplished because He has Paul says, is faithful to do it. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your great love and faithfulness to us. God, we thank you that we can be people of the day and that uh, you've chosen people like us to be dragged into the daytime and not be afraid of the suddenness of your coming not because we're so good, not because we already look like these daytime people, but because you have chosen to do mercy to us, to be kind to us. And Father, I pray that the truth of that will beckon us. God, if we have been caught in a life that is all about ourselves, that does not look as is described here and elsewhere in your word, God, we, we want to turn around and we want to leave that way of life. We want to be charitable with one another. We want to be peace-driven people. We want to be people of joy and gratitude and prayer. God, I pray that you would help us to be dissatisfied with life as we have known it and instead be re-in-love with you in the life that you bring. And Father, I pray for those who are here today who want nothing to do with you who would rather face judgment on their own, hope that some people are judged for some things, but themselves are afraid of being judged for anything. And God, I pray that they would see you standing there, the righteous and true judge, who will judge all the wickedness of, of this world, and it was at the same time extended to them a hand of mercy. God, I pray that they would respond to it. They would respond to you. And they would turn and extend the response of their lives, their trust in you. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. It is our great hope now and forever. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.